part two of James. Last week we were into, uh, had all of our missionaries share. Soundness of soul from the inside out. And this morning the topic is learning to live confidently in the good wisdom of God. Learning to live confidently in the good wisdom of God. There are things that war against that kind of confidence. The text we read, James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So you get a picture of a a body where external forces, and he's talking about our circumstances, our trials, and so this picture comes to his mind of of a body of water, and it it goes with whichever way the external forces are pushing it at that moment. Like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Driven, driven and tossed. That's what trials can do to people. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And that puts all sorts of condemnation on people. And I want to try to remove confusion about those words because I think they're badly misunderstood in the church. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's just pray. There's not one of us, Lord, who lives life without trial. And we studied two weeks ago your plan to use trials to make us entire and perfect and complete and lacking nothing. And today we start to see how that's not an automatic process. Come and and give your word warmth and light in our hearts and minds that our lives would be stable and secure and not driven by circumstance. You have invested so much in our hearts through the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we want to be faithful children of our Father through all the circumstances of life. And so, use this, use this time to to teach us as we all submit to your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Point number one. That's a record, eh? Getting into point number one right off the bat like that. You're used to me talking for 25 minutes and then saying point number one. What is needed most when trials come? Verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives generously to all, these words are interesting, without reproach, and it will be given him. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now, it's important to remember the context of these words. It's been two weeks, but the opening verses, 2, 3, and 4, they, they define the kind of wisdom that James is talking about. This is not a wisdom for, for sitting and sort of con- just contemplating 
contemplating the, the meaning of life and, and meditating on deep things and, and praying that God will, will make you a, a wise sage who can write Proverbs for people to read and be blessed. Not that kind of wisdom. He said in 2, 3, and 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials. Trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So James is continuing on this same theme that he opened with. And now I learn the additional information here is for trials to produce fruit in my life, I need wisdom. It's not enough that God does his part. Okay? There's, there's my side of things. There's something I bring to the table. And what I bring to the table is I go to him for wisdom. And the specific kind of wisdom I need is, he talks about a wisdom to know. You know, right? A wisdom to know and a wisdom to wait. Let steadfastness have its full effect. A wisdom to know Two kinds of wisdom. A wisdom to know something and a wisdom to wait for something. So this tall order of understanding trials and then persevering in a godly way, it isn't easy. It's fruitful. Like it it will. Perfect. Complete. Lacking in nothing. It's, It's fruitful, but it's not easy. And it's not natural to us. And it's not automatic for us. Wisdom to know and a wisdom to persevere. So I learned something. My, my normal reflex reactions won't make me perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. When, when the heat of trial is on, not one of us feels anything beneficial can possibly come out of it. It feels lousy. And so James reminds these, unless we wonder, he's talking about badly mistreated Christians, persecuted Christians, Christians who are, who are having their rights just stomped all over. It's not fair. They didn't do anything to deserve the kind of treatment they're getting. They're being abused, all right? So when the heat of that kind of trial is on, you don't feel like anything good can come out of it. And James reminds these these mistreated Christians that they'll get nothing good out of just reacting on their hurt or agitated or bruised feelings. Nothing good will come that way. We always need that reminder. And that's why James says that what we need most, what we should ask for first, has somebody done anything really cruel and crummy to you lately? 
If you go to God and the first thing you ask for is justice, you're not going to be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Has somebody been cruel or mean or abusive or persecuted you in some recent way? If you concentrate on just striking back, then you will never be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So the first thing we're to pray for, well, we need wisdom. Verse 5, we need wisdom. Lord, I, I don't know. I don't know why this is happening the way it's happening. And I don't know how to cope with it. And I don't know how to unravel it. I don't know what to do. I don't think I have the strength. My mind is full of confusion, discouragement, perhaps even anger. Trials come. And the first thing we think to know, the first thing we need to know about trials, real trials, is is the way they make us feel. We immediately become aware of this enormous discrepancy between feeling the pain, the frustration, the anger of the trial, and this description that James gives of being perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. what, What you feel in the midst of your trial is anything but perfect, Complete, lacking in nothing. We feel like we either have to say, God doesn't care, or we have to say our faith isn't working, or, and perhaps this is even worse, we feel we have to pretend things are better than they are because we want to look like people of faith and power. And vast segments of the church have almost been taught that people of faith and power don't experience those kinds of trials. So where where do we go? Where do we go when our lives are being shaken up? When you feel, when, you know, you feel more like the bug than the windshield. What do you do when that overwhelming sense of weakness and ignorance kind of sweeps over your soul? And, and James begins with something so basic and obvious. It's not that we don't agree with him. It's just we probably wouldn't have taken the time to even mention it. You, you start by praying. You, you start by taking your reflexes the way you would naturally and quickly respond. You start by taking your reflexes out and bringing God in. In. You, you refuse to prejudge things. You don't assume you already know what the right reaction should be. That's what prayer means. And by the way, it is okay to pray for God to deliver you from trial. Lots of times He will. The Bible is full of times when our God is revealed as a delivering God. He delivered his people out of Egypt, delivered Peter from prison, delivered Paul from murderous thugs and poisonous snakes. Pray. Pray for deliverance. Not asking God to deliver you or heal you 
or bless you. That isn't some kind of sign of spiritual maturity. It's okay. It's okay, just as Jesus taught, as we say every Sunday night, deliver us from evil. It's good praying. Here's a simple rule to follow. I try and use it in my own life. Pray for deliverance from trial. Pray for specific, immediate help. Do your best to pray with faith and expectancy. All of that is fine. As long as you don't make your immediate deliverance from trial the only answer you will accept from God. And by the way, I hope I don't have to say it in this church, refuse the nonsense of word, faith, positive confession. That if you just speak it and believe it, it should happen that way. And if not, then there's just something wrong with your faith. In all of your asking for wisdom, remember, you have to ask for it. You have to wait for it. Don't assume you know what's the right thing. That's especially important when the trial lingers. Sometimes situations get worse before they get better. And when that happens, then ask, seek, knock, scratch, dig, claw for wisdom. It's the command of the Scriptures. It's the command of the Scriptures because if you, if you condition yourself that only your solution is the one you can accept, then you will never become perfect complete, lacking in nothing. James says prayer can bring you something even more precious than deliverance. It can bring you wisdom. It can, says James, make your life perfect in a way that an immediate deliverance from your trial never would make you perfect. You will find this kind of wisdom in no book, no sermon, no conference, no website, no blog. You, you have to go directly to the source. James says you have to ask God. You have to linger. You have to wait. You have to listen. You have to get his viewpoint on your trial, and you have to learn to do that for yourself. So this is ground zero. This is the starting place. Lesson number one. Trials don't automatically do anything good in my life or in yours. We don't become godly simply as a result of the net experiences accumulating in our lives. God has to be brought in. God has to be mixed in. Number two. Remember the character of Father God when you face the trial and when you ask for wisdom. And it's as though James knows we find it easier to pray when we feel blessed than when we feel stressed. And so he places, he places a special encouragement to people like us when we go through trials and we go to God for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
Let him ask of God, and he says two things. He gives generously, that's one, and he does it without, a, without reproach. I want to look at those two things. I'll tell you what trials do. They make you constantly second-guess yourself. Maybe I'm just no good. Maybe I just deserve whatever's happening to me. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you think, I just, I never make wise choices. I'm just, you know what? I'm just a spiritual klutz. I don't know why God even puts up with me. Look at my life. Maybe you think you're just programmed. Oh, maybe you're, you're here this morning and you think you're just, you're just programmed for failure. And, and you, never, you never seem to do anything right. And you couldn't function in the kind of wisdom that James describes here. Oh, something that makes you perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. You just, you just deserve the bad things because you're such a foolish person to start with. And I want to tell you two of the most beautiful things you'll ever hear in church. Right? One. James says, when you ask God for wisdom, that he will give it generously. That's not the same as easily, taking you out of the trial and making everything wonderful, but he'll give it generously if you'll wait on him. Now, we all look at that word generously and we just assume we know what that means. But the way we think of generosity, it doesn't catch all that James is trying to say. Generous, in this verse, doesn't simply mean that he gives big quantities. Like like two scoops of ice cream instead of just one. He gives it generously. There's more to it than that. The word, by the way, that's translated generous here, and I'm not trying to bore you with this, but this is important. The word, the Greek word translated generous here is haplous. And while it can carry the meaning of liberality, it it, it also is frequently used in the New Testament to to convey the concept of, of single or unmixed. Let me just give you a good example of this. A good example would be found, this isn't our subject of course, but in Ephesians 6, 5 where Paul writes to slaves, and he says, a lot of them have come to Christ. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere or single heart, as you would Christ. And that word, that word sincere, and you'll see the similarity, is the word haplotes, meaning singleness. And so, what Paul is trying to tell these servants in Ephesus is servants aren't to be part-time. They aren't to serve faithfully only when their master is there looking over their shoulders. He says they're to be totally committed. They are to have a single goal. They shouldn't have mixed motives. They shouldn't do this grudgingly. Quite a thing to say when you think of it. They were to serve 
out of obedience to their master, whether he was there watching them or not watching them. Didn't make any difference. And now, now, you get the thrust of what James is saying. That God is perfect in being an example of that word sincere, single in his heart towards you. He's he's saying God never has mixed feelings towards you. God never has mixed feelings towards you. We get like that because we're what James calls double-minded. God's commitment. You go and you ask for wisdom. You need help. You need wisdom to be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. And James says, well, the first thing you need to know is that when you ask for wisdom, God gives it generously, which doesn't just mean a whole bunch, but with with a single-hearted giving. His commitment is never diluted. Even when the trial you face doesn't go away, God is still totally committed to perfecting and maturing your life. That's what James is saying. Never lose sight of that. He is absolutely single in purpose. You can count on him 100% of the time. Go to God, ask for wisdom... And when you ask, remember, he's committed to nothing else. Nothing other than your ultimate good. I said there were two beautiful truths. Here's the second. James says when you go to God for wisdom, he will give it without reproach. That's in that fifth verse. Yeah, it's in that fifth verse that one, without reproach. James is dealing, when he says that God gives without reproach, he is dealing with the most vicious attack of the enemy on your heart. He is dealing with the one thing that keeps people from going to God more than anything else. There's this great misunderstanding of the heart of God. We, we feel so keenly the weight of our own unworthiness. In the midst of our trial, in the midst of our difficulty, we're supposed to pray. We're to go and ask for wisdom. And then the, as soon as you bend the knee to pray, the one thing that you become aware of more than anything else is, is how lousy you feel and that you really shouldn't be here. Everybody know what I'm talking about? You're not qualified. We feel so keenly, especially in trials, we feel so keenly the weight of our own unworthiness. And James says we all need to deal with the idea that somehow God is anxious to lecture us whenever we approach him for wisdom in our time of trial. He says he doesn't. He doesn't give with reproach. Let me tell you what giving with reproach is. I remember clearly, I can still remember when I used to get 50 cents for an allowance. I know that sounds funny to some people. 50 cents. 
But to get the 50 cents, it wasn't just a matter... You didn't get 50 cents just because I had the same last name as my dad or because I breathed in oxygen and breathed out carbon dioxide. You got the 50 cents because you cut the grass or you took the garbage out or you shoveled the snow. And you would do all those things and then you had, you had an allowance. And I knew... Saturday, whenever I went to Dad and asked him for an allowance, that that getting the 50 cents also meant getting a, a talk about the meaning of life and the value of money. Anybody ever have that happen? And I knew, he loved me, but I knew that it would always end with that inevitable question, what did you do with the last 50 cents I gave you. Did you blow all that already? That's giving with reproach. You get the 50 cents. And whenever I hear a 50 cent lecture, that's the speech that always comes to my my mind. That's giving with reproach. And listen to me. Listen to me. James says... In spite of what you might think of your heavenly father, James says, God never does that. Everybody get that? God never does that. Oh, there's teaching, there's instruction in his word, but I'm talking about a person who humbly comes, prays, seeks the face of God, looking for help, looking for wisdom. He never gives with reproach. Never. What a great thought. Take that home from church. When you go to God for wisdom and help in your time of trial, He never treats you like you have to justify being there. Jesus keeps the door open. Each time... You come, no matter how often you've come, and you seek God for wisdom. Each time is fresh, each time is free, and each time is absolutely new. Church, that's what we mean when we make reference to God's mercies being new every day morning. Listen to me. Listen to me. When you go to God in your trial and you ask for wisdom, no matter how many times you've come, hear me, it is always the very first time. Someone just say, praise God. It is always the very first time. They're new every morning. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I'm sorry, but we should just give God praise just for a minute. Hallelujah, Lord. Your mercy, your faithfulness, the newness of it each and every time that you don't get tired of us. What matchless grace. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you don't believe that, and if you don't remind yourself of that, If you think in your heart of hearts that God may well answer your prayer, but he's not very happy about it, then you won't come. You won't come. 
please remember this. When I go to God for wisdom in my time of trial, I never have to justify not already having the wisdom I need. What did you do with the last 50 cents I gave you? There's no lecture. Some of the other translations will say God gives without finding fault. He doesn't feel the need to remind us of past failures. That is simply, James says, that is not the heart of Father God to people who come. He gives generously with a single heart. Okay? He is committed to nothing other than your good. Even if you don't understand it right now in your trial. He gives with a single heart, generously, and he gives without reproach, without the lecture. It's always the first time. It is always the first time. Three. Ask God for wisdom with an undivided heart. And I want to share with you an insight that I've read this passage over and over again. I just want to show you something that I learned freshly. Maybe you've known it all along, but let me just share it with you anyway. James 1.6. But let him ask in faith. And this part gives people trouble with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Here's the insight. I started to see the way James moves from the way God gives, single-heartedly, without a lecture. He relates the way God gives to the way we must ask. The way God gives single-heartedly, unmixed. The way God gives is presented as the model for the way we need to ask. God gives with a single, unmixed, pure heart, and we must ask with single, unmixed, pure hearts. Let me explain how these verses are frequently misinterpreted. We all get a picture, because we've been there, of some poor person. Let's pretend it's somebody else and not any of us. But don't tell those other people we were talking about them. We get a picture of some poor person desperately needing help from the Lord. And he starts to pray. And he goes and he's asking for wisdom. He's asking for help. And he's waiting on God and Suddenly, as he's waiting on God, he takes note of a doubtful thought that came to the back of his mind. Just the way your, your computer uh, tracks spam in an email or something. And so right back here, as I'm praying, as I'm asking God, I get this, uh, there's a doubt. A doubt comes. I wasn't looking for it. It just popped into my head. And then I start to think of James' words. Ask in faith. No doubts. And I just had a doubt. See where I'm going with this? I just had a doubt. So my faith really is weak. I guess, uh, well, I mean, it says right there, I'm wasting, might as well not be here. I'm wasting my time because... I tried not to doubt, but 
as I started to pray, the doubt came, and then James says, you're not going to receive anything, so what's the use of being here? And we all know how when you try not to have any doubts, you just give an energy to doubts coming to your mind. There's nothing that fixes your mind in a certain direction than trying not to think about a certain thing. And so those very thoughts, they begin to come like locusts with an energy all of their own. And so you you start to pray, but you know you're supposed to pray in faith without doubting, and so you're trying hard not to doubt, and the more you try not to doubt, the more you don't feel like a person of faith because the more doubts come. Is this ringing a bell with anybody? I want to tell you, that's not what this is about. That is not what this is about. God has infinite compassion for people with weak faith. The Bible says so. The Bible says he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. God is not surprised by how weak we are. Jesus had nothing but compassion and would answer the cry of people who admitted they had weak faith. That's not what James is describing. What James is talking about isn't so much thoughts of doubt that come as conflicting loyalties. That just as God gives with a a single-hearted generosity to make us perfect, complete, lacking nothing, he has no other goals on his agenda. Just as he gives with that single-hearted devotion, we are to ask with loyalty to him. So it's not so much thoughts that come as conflicting loyalties. The word James uses for doubting in verse 6 is diacrino. It literally means to separate, oppose, or withdraw from. That's the word he uses for doubting. In fact, you can see it. If you want to see how it's used in Scripture, you can see it in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, the Jews, criticized him. That word criticize is the same word used in our text for doubting. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. Criticized him. Opposed him. You can't can't try to pray in one direction if you've already committed to living in a different one. You can't walk in opposing directions if you want God's wisdom. That's what this picture of the sea driven by wind is all about. Watch the sea in a strong wind. used to love it when we went on a cruise and Rini and I would stand on the deck and you just look down right where the ship is cutting through the ocean. Maybe it's a windy day and and you think it would just be a simple wave rolling off, but as you kind of look and lean, it's, it's all churning all over the place. Unpredictable. 
churning conglomeration of opposing forces going in different direction. Nothing is channeled in one direction. James is saying, do go and ask God for wisdom, but listen. You can't ask God for wisdom the way you ask a decorator for advice. Everybody get it? You can't go to God for wisdom the way you go to a decorator seeking advice. James is saying you, 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 have, to be, you have to be committed to what, what God is going to show and deal with in your own heart. He takes all that explosive energy about the sea and he, and he ties it to calling on God for wisdom in your time of trial. Okay, here we go. Someone's mistreating you. Your rights have been trampled on. And you've already set up in your heart patterns of response that are driven by anger, bitterness, perhaps even hatred. And James says, then don't, don't go to God and pray. You've already made up your mind. See, you're, 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 you've already committed to this direction and you're going and asking God for wisdom. What for? There's, there's kind of a humility that's required in going to God for wisdom. There's a submission required in going to God for wisdom. Here's another person having a season of doubt and discouragement. Things that were once clear and settled in the mind are all jumbled and unscrewed. They're not even sure if they're Christians anymore. And, and they're becoming angry with people who try and help them spiritually. Once they were all fired up and blessed, now they're not sure they want anything to do with Christianity. And people go and help, and they're already committed to a course of rebellion. Well, then don't, don't go to God for wisdom. If you're committed to your course, don't go to God for wisdom. That's what James is saying. He doesn't mean you don't, you don't come to God, and you don't start praying with, with no human weakness at all. He doesn't mean that. Gee, I don't even know if this is going to work, God, but that's okay. As long as it's not, I've already committed, I know what I need to do in this situation. Uh, and bless me, Father, for I've sinned. You can't do it. You can't do it. That's the kind of stuff. These are the kinds of situations... James knows people will face all kinds of trials and struggles. That's what he's writing about. But you have to set some direction for your life. You can't seek God until you decided you're going to follow him. You can't follow God's wisdom and cast your mind in all sorts of directions at the same time. Rule your spirit. Put all your eggs in one basket, God's basket. Then ask him for wisdom. We're almost done. Learn to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, that's it, in two minds. Unstable in all his ways. So, so James expands now on this very serious problem. And as he pictures this body of water, the surface is driven solely by the wind. There's nothing else ruling it but circumstance. Everything goes in one direction, then it goes in another. 
There's no focus. And of course, he's describing people who wander and drift spiritually. They don't take life in any direction. They simply respond to whatever the latest force is that shoves them in some direction. When somebody irritates them, they're irritated. When somebody discourages them, they're discouraged. When something good happens, they're over-the-top thrilled. When something bad happens, they want to give up on God. Whatever way stuff blows. They want God's help and blessing on their lives when they're in trouble. Do you know anybody like this? But the rest of the time, they want to live life pretty much on their own terms. Double-minded. And James says because they're trying to possess two worlds, they really get neither one with any measure of satisfaction. Jesus labored to describe an approach to life in his kingdom that was, that was free of cracks and divisions, built on a rock, And the most important thing was to love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when he said that, he wasn't trying to put kingdom life outside of the reach of ordinary Christians. That's not it. He wasn't saying we all had to give away all of our material goods, move to India, and reach the lost. Those words... Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. They apply to you. If you give Jesus your life, you have to give him all of it or don't give him any of it. It's just this spiritual law. You will grow in wisdom as you practice giving Jesus all your life. And the hardest part of our lives to give, listen to me, the hardest part of our lives to give isn't our wealth. The hardest part of our lives to give Jesus is our reactions to people. Our reactions to people. You learn to follow him in small things first. Don't look for greatness as much as consistency. Apply this to your whole life. When you make a commitment, make it a firm commitment. Did you join the choir? Do you go? Bible study? Devotions? Do you go to church regularly? The basic commitments... Are you double-minded in those? To be strong spiritually, you don't have to do great things. You have to do ordinary things with all your heart. You have to practice living life like that. You can't just pray for it. There are all sorts of little commitments, faithfully kept, that have more power over the rest of your life than you realize. They will keep you in times of trial. We all know the verses. 
You can probably say them with me. If you know them, say them. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths or make your paths straight, depending on your translation. It's the same idea. Small acts of faithfulness. In all your ways, just acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. Small acts of faithfulness have more to do with bringing the wisdom and power of God into your life in trying times than most of us ever imagine. Go and ask for wisdom. Don't prejudge. Go and ask for wisdom. God gives generously with a single heart. His only goal is not to torment you, to make you perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. He gives without a lecture. Every time is the first time in terms of his mercy. And the way we ask must correspond with the way God gives. Just single-hearted, faithful in all the things so that all of our hearts are in all of the things we do for Jesus. Let's pray.